Welcome, you're listening to All Things Naval Aviation with your host, Rear Admiral John Meyer, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic. Welcome to All Things Naval Aviation. This is Rear Admiral John Meyer, Commander, Naval Air Force Atlantic, and we've got a special guest with us today. It's my distinct pleasure and honor to welcome Vice Admiral Woody Lewis, currently serving as the commander of Second Fleet, and great opportunity to chat with him about his 36 years of service and really uh, pick his brain about some insight uh, as a career naval aviator, but also going out as a, a standing up Second Fleet. Admiral Lewis, welcome. Thanks, Doctor. Great to be here. Well, sir, uh, this is, uh, you know, you're coming up on a change of command and retirement. So the culmination of 36 years of absolutely distinguished service in the Navy. I'm interested at the outset, what what steered you in the direction of naval aviation? Um, a little bit by happenstance. Uh, to be honest with you, I, you I, I'm a Naval Academy graduate just as you are and and, uh, you know, in those days, you, you got called down to Smoke Hall, I think, or Memorial Hall, I can't remember which, uh, when your class rank uh, came up. And uh, my class rank was not near the top, so I was actually falling asleep when, uh, when my name got called. And I was prepared to go uh, <laughs> to go into surface warfare because I didn't think there would be a pilot spot by the time they got to me. But I was fortunate that we were still on that the, the uh, Reagan years and that 600 uh, ship Navy buildup. So they I had, they had two uh, pilot spots left uh, when uh, when I got down there. So I chose naval aviation because that's what I really wanted to do from what I knew. And then uh, you know from there I just kind of took it one step at a time. And uh, the whole time in naval aviation has just been. Uh, fascinating experience for me. I've done things and been places and uh, flown airplanes. I, I just had no idea that it existed when I was growing up and even when I was at the Naval Academy. Uh, and it's just been, you know, a fascinating journey along the way. And every, every, every step has been really a neat experience. Yeah, it's impressive resume of flying. Right out of flight school, you rolled back to be a surgrad. We've had that program off and on for a few years. So you went right into being an instructor uh, after you got your wings, teaching, you know, imparting that knowledge at an early age, went into flew A7s and then transitioned to the A7 community, the F-18. You flew with the Royal Navy and Harriers and then uh, obviously in Rhinos. And I believe you're still current. Uh, are you not? I am. Uh, the Well, I'm current in that, that I, I did swim fizz for the 10th time a couple of years ago, which was always, that's always good. And I'm, and I'm ready to go flying. I'm, I'm actually going to go flying for my, my final flight. I think, uh, this coming the next Thursday before the change of command. But yeah, I've, I've been really lucky in that regard and, and got to fly operationally, you know, a lot of different airplanes and that, you know, flying with a, Flying with the Brits and the Sea Harrier, which is an AD-8A with a radar on the nose, was very challenging, very uh, uh, and, a, and a very interesting experience. And I also deployed with them a couple of times. Uh, so going from being a Surgrad to A7 to Harriers built up a lot of uh, 
basic airmanship just to stay alive in those in those platforms. And then you know, when I got to the F-18 in the mid-90s, and I felt like I was, as an aviator, better better prepared than uh, I would have been previously. And uh, it was really a, just a, like I said before, it's just it's really cool to do all that stuff. And then, you know, so I enjoyed the heck out of it. Well, I'll tell you, by my math, I think you've spent about half of your time in the Navy in command. First command at VFA 15, you went on to command the FRS here in Oceana at VFA 106. You were CAG 3. You went on to NSOC at the time, now Nautic, Carrier Strike Group 12, and Second Fleet. And I'm interested in any insight or perspective on on command itself, but I have no doubt that our listeners would would be uh, hanging on your your thoughts about command in general. Uh, anything you can share with us over those uh, many many commands? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the the command. I you know I've really been um, I've been in command positions or you know operational staff positions since you know since my first command tour. Uh, which is you know over 20 years ago or about 20 years ago now. So uh, and that you know there's lots of uh, by by virtue of timing and things that I've been exposed to, there's been some really uh, uh, amazing things that happened. For example, you know, I was I flew in the first first night of Desert Storm in 1991 as a JO and A7. I was deployed twice as an XOCO. The first time when we were deployed uh, in Enterprise in 2001, when September 11th occurred, and I led a strike into Afghanistan the first night of of that uh, of Operation Enduring Freedom, which is, you know, ironically kind of rounding out now, uh, you know, some years later, 20 years later, and then uh, as a squadron CEO, I led a strike in uh, from the Eastern Med uh, into Iraq and OIF one, uh, and those were big. You know, you really felt like you're right at the, the point of, of you know what was occurring in national, you know, in the, in the operations of the military. And I mean, what I learned over time in in command and from other people that I've worked for. I mean, the laundry list is really really long, but the things that are that are, some things that really impacted me. Uh, Along the line was when I was a junior officer, my 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 first skipper in eight seven, a guy named J.R. Sanders, who is uh, you know, who has uh, passed away now. Uh, J.R. taught me a lot about basic leadership and a lot about how to treat your people, how to be how, how to be uh, thorough in understanding the airplane, and understanding what the mission is, and how those sailors that work you know, on the flight line, contribute uh, to so directly to the mission. And then, you know, in, in command, learning from the people who work for me, the people I work with, and the people I work for is kind of an even balance. And in fact, I probably learned more in command uh, from my peers and my subordinates than I did from my superiors. And I think that focus, because you really gain, I think you gain an appreciation for what your subordinates do to affect the mission. 
and what your peers do to work as a team. So there's no no more uh, exciting thing to be a part of a team, and that that's what we're we have on the waterfront right now with uh, with the waterfront team, with all the TICOMs and all the strike group commanders. I mean, these everybody. My job is really easy uh, because the team works together so well. You know, between you you and uh, you know, Brendan McLean currently at, at Surfland and, and with even with Sub4 where it's applicable and then also with the region and Chip Rock and his team. I mean it's just really a it's really it's an easy easy to be a part of it as that and you know kind of take credit for all that team. But there's a lot there but I could go on and on but that's probably more than you wanted to hear. Well, that's an interesting perspective to me on the early influence of JR. And I know that there were a lot of other leaders along the way. But from my perspective, I think you've really taken mission command and really operationalized that. You know, originally, I believe, termed as an army term or um, kind of brought into focus by the army. But I would argue it's, it's really a fundamental Navy term going back to our earliest days where we would send commanders with really loose guidance or orders uh, over the horizon. We had nowhere near the communications that we have today, but you've really fostered that amongst your subordinate commanders. And uh, I'm interested in your perspective on mission command, because I think that's a a lesson that uh, all of us can take away on, on the practical application of that as a numbered fleet commander down to your subordinate commanders. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks, officer. That's uh, a really good, you know, uh, big question. And, I, you know, I would, I would uh, characterize it like this, you know, so kind of in the modern characterization of mission command uh, was that, that, that documentation, the joint publication that came out on this was when I was in the joint staff the first time, and it was authored by um, George Flynn, Lieutenant General, retired now, Marine Corps George Flynn, who was the J-7, the first three-star J-7 that we had on the joint staff. And it's when Admiral Gordon was the director of the joint staff, and I was in the EA right after, it was right after I, right before I made flags. And uh, when he authored this, and, you know, Dempsey signed it out as the chairman, but it kind of put some structure to, you know, the broad term mission command. And then, you know, as we talked about a couple of years back, when we were at NWDC, you know, and, and we, we kind of walked through this, the practical application to me of mission command and how I've seen it work kind of at all levels uh, is it starts with trust. And it starts with trust with subordinates and peers and superiors alike. And the only way to build that trust is through, you know, com- uh, you know a common understanding of the environment, but also, you know, walking it through, talking it through, and having regular interactions. And as you know, I do a, a fireside chat every week with subordinate commanders, and it's, it's somewhat structured, but not overly structured in what we talk about. And that's just to build that trust and build that team approach and, and you know, build the same awareness of shared awareness. And then that's an opportunity for me to verbalize intent and then follow up that verbalization of intent with proper mission orders. 
i.e., what, you know, what Admiral Gordy would call jokes products, but standard, you know, standard message format, things like DIM, things like, you know, in a, in, in a, in a, you know, in a SMEAC format, so on and so forth. And then, then it's all about in mission command, in execution is, it's a, it's a, it's a initiative and risk tension that exists at all levels and all communities. And that where that, where that individual commanders or individual supervisors or watchstanders are able to take for, for aircraft commanders in, in the case of aviation, where they use their initiative to create opportunity to achieve the mission and they balance that risk that, that they've got coming in. It's not a very, it's not very, uh, conducive to checklist, but it is, you know, if you all, if everybody understands where their calculus is, where they initiative needs to be used. Uh, and that's where I, I've been pleased with what I see with the board commanders interlevel ES2 and 3 where that has played out very well and we've delegated that further down through the 06 commander level and 05 commander level. And we're seeing, I think, on the waterfront, at least in and then where we go forward into forward numbers, please. I think in pretty um, pretty good uh, response to that. I think in my humble opinion, I think the relationship we have at the 05, 06 level in the communities now across the board is stronger than it's ever been. Uh, you know, as much I'd like to say how good I was, I wasn't that good comparatively. Uh, you know, and uh, I think the team is really good right now. And that's due to the, due to that focus on that, I think. Well, I, um, yeah, I, I think you're, you're, uh, being a little bit humble in, in that regard as far as, uh, how good you were back in the day. But when I think mission command, I, I really, um, think of Admiral Nelson and, you know, that rapport. I mean, he was famous for the rapport he had with his subordinate commanders and that rapport, uh, whether today it's a fireside chat or back in his day, it was gathering his, uh, subordinates to his uh, command to have dinner, to break bread, uh, to have planning meetings and that sort of thing. I mean, it really drove this shared understanding deep into the organization, and it really got the organization working, uh, his subordinates working as though they were an, an absolute extension of him. I've certainly stolen some of the pages out of your playbook with the fireside chat and the drum beats. I do that as the type commander here uh, in different groups with air wing commanders, with carrier commanders, and also with our Commodores uh, to do that exact same thing, to build the trust, to share the communication uh, so that they really have no uh, doubts about what's on uh, my mind or uh, how we should get after things. I, I'd like to sh shift gears a little bit and really kind of talk ab about uh, some of the, the significant accomplishments here as standing second fleet up, which uh, I'm interested in your perspective on. First and foremost, uh, born about really by this rebirth of strategic competition. 
you, you and I joined about the same time. I was just a year behind you at the academy. It was the Reagan buildup. Uh, our potential adversaries, China wasn't on the, the horizon yet. Russia kind of went into a long state of decline, as the, the Soviet Union did. But there's been this significant resurgence that really drove the pulling Second Fleet back out of Fleet Forces Command, uh, where it had been subsumed a number of years ago. I'm interested in your perspective on uh, the necessity to do that, maybe the challenges of standing up a new numbered fleet as well. And then uh, I know you've also focused tremendously on the uh, the agility of that fleet so that it wasn't a, a large bloated staff, but it was more of an expeditionary uh, type staff. Yeah, so, um, yeah there's a, a lot there. So for, for example, yeah, the emphasis for standing up, reestablishing second fleet, uh, you know, is because of the strength, the, you know, the changed strategic environment, you know, and as you know, Three years ago, almost you know, almost exactly, you know, I had about a fewer than a dozen people reestablishing fleet. So that was that was leaner than it needed to be. We're much bigger than that now, obviously. But as it as it's uh, progressing, I think it's real. The vision of that has really become more clear and focused as a as a lean and agile and expeditionary numbered fleet. So less tied geographically, although focused in the Atlantic for sure, but less tied ge geographically and more tied in a mission focus in the maritime and high-end maritime operations. And that that's really starting to come into better vision. And, and as you know, as I turn over the command of Dozer here next Friday, I think you know, he's going to take it to the next level of of you know, we're, we're building really a, a deployable JTF, Joint Toys Task Force Center, which is what really what Second Fleet was doing in the days before, uh, you know, kind of 2000, before 2005, where it kind of collapsed into more. That, I think, um, that, that, that is where the, the future of the command is. There's been certainly a lot of challenges associated with that. But the, the challenge is, you know, like with anything, anything worth doing is it's going to be hard. Uh, and what we've really, uh, we've really got, gone a long way. And it, I think it's actually accelerating right now. Just this recent exercise that we're in the midst of right now, where, um, where, you know, the, the large scale exercise, we've really, we've really come a long way in, in understanding uh, command and control structures and, and relationships between numbered fleets and between the the, um, the joint force maritime component commanders, so I think those are all really good good things. Yeah, there's another significant aspect to that too, and while I and then while I with that while we frequently refer to as, as second fleet commander, you have another hat as well. So you uh, are also the joint force commander. Norfolk, so JFC Norfolk, which has uh, a whole nother element to it uh, and is really in that uh, very, very valuable space that's linked back to the national defense strategy regarding the value of our allies and partners. Um, so you really split your time between Second Fleet Commander and JFC Norfolk. Can you talk a little bit about that role as well? Yeah, absolutely. Joint Force Command Norfolk is the first operational command in NATO 
on North American continent. Uh, so it's there's one there's one of three Joint Force Commands. The other one's in Naples. Uh, we dual had it with Commander Naval Forces Europe, Admiral Burke. And the other, the third one is in JFC Brunson, which is in the Netherlands, which is a single-hatted German commander. Uh, and this, so broadly, the stack years AOR is, is gigantic. It's about half the world's surface. And broadly, I'm responsible as JFC Norfolk for the Atlantic and the Arctic, so that the battle space overlays where where I'm focused with Second Fleet as well. So. It's a very good marriage in that regard. And actually, my, you know, I, my maritime component commander, uh, command element of JFC Norfolk is Second Fleet. And we exercised this just not long ago, about six weeks ago, in an exercise, a NATO exercise called Steadfast Defender, in which my Canadian vice commander was on board the Mount Whitney, uh, with, with about 70 staff members. From Second Fleet as the Maritime Component Commander, I was the overall as JFC Norfolk. I was running this part of the exercise, and my Brett two-star commander at, uh, at, at JFC Norfolk was in you know at at Norfolk and our in our jock had met up, and I was bouncing between the two basically, and I was in in uh, Lisbon most of the time. Where the exercise was actually taking place, but they were doing all the heavy work on that on that regard. So it's a really good um, kind of confirmation of this concept of working that together, and uh, that was pretty pretty interesting. And the last thing I'll say about NATO is, you know, I had not served in a NATO capacity, uh, uh, you know, at a staff capacity before. You know, I'd done plenty of tactical operating under under NATO in some in one way, shape, or fashion in the past. What I, I learned over the la- I've learned over the last three years is just how powerful that alliance is, and that and, that, and the real uh, power behind you know, allied alliances and partnerships. It's, you know, it's broader than just NATO. Obviously, alliances. There's many more alliances that we have, particularly in the Pacific. But then there's also these other partnerships where it's strengthened that piece too. Partnerships with the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, uh, partnerships with at echelon joint command uh, within the U.S. So that that really is kind of you know pulled beyond just allies and partners. You know, everybody likes to use that term, but what it, what does it mean in actuality? And what it's done for us is you know it's really built a capability and a capacity beyond what we would have uh, otherwise. That's another long-winded answer. Well, having seen that and lived some of that myself as well, not many people may realize this, but virtually every every strike group that we have, carrier strike group anyway, has a partner or, or ally with it, and that interoperability and your focus on that has been uh, really, really impressive to, to support. Uh, even a level beyond that, one of our strongest allies, the UK, you know, right now we've got a Marine squadron deployed on Queen Elizabeth. 
operating in the South China Sea, that goes beyond interoperability. That really starts to get into this, this conversation of interchangeability, where uh, one of our units can deploy on theirs, one of theirs presumably can deploy with us at a future date. And I would offer that I think you have really advanced uh, that partnership that we have with our allies. Uh, one one last question here before we uh, I let you go, sir. And you know, after 36 years of being a naval aviator, I'm I'm wondering what kind of uh, insight or advice you might have to uh, a young naval aviator or a, a, a young man or woman aspiring to be a naval aviator. Um. <laughs> yeah, that that's a good one. So. Actually, before I go there, let me just just one last thing. You know, you mentioned that the about the Queen Elizabeth. You know, during Steadfast Defender, she was the carrier that we went out to and did our distinguished visitor day and all that business. And all these, you know, part of that global carrier force, uh, you know, which you know, which is what you're focused on as far as your your aircraft carriers, you know, increasing that ace above of our aircraft carriers, but also that that partnering and interchangeability we have, you know, we had the Cavour out here with F-35s, the Spanish have got a capability, the Italians, the Brits, the French, obviously, uh, with their, their single uh, traditional carrier. That whole global carrier force is much stronger uh, with all these, with all, all these efforts that we're going toward interoperability and inter, you know, into interchangeability or integration and interchangeability. So advice I would give, um, I would, I would not think too much about career. I would think a lot about where it is you can contribute your, your God given skills to the mission directly and never forget about the people that make it all happen. Because those of us who are lucky enough to be sitting at the controls of an airplane have about, you know, thousands of people that do all the really hard work of making that uh, a reality. And so the, the, the challenge before leadership as aviators is to really, really understand your machine and understand the people that make that machine work and, uh, and never, you know, get, get too far ahead of yourself as far as what's next. Think about what you can do better in your position than you're currently in. Uh, you know, just as a, as a C story, you know, I've done everything. Uh, because I've done that uh, every step of the way. And I've, I've done, you know, my uh, career progression, if you like, is, is kind of abnormal in many respects. And I, you know, for example, I asked to go fly A7s when A7 was going away after being a surgeon. I asked you to fly, do the exchange over the Royal Navy, and everybody's like, oh, you're never even going to make lieutenant commander, much less do anything else. Uh, you know, I, I asked to go to Japan as a department head uh, when Japan was not a very popular place to go to. In fact, when I was, uh, I'm down here in, in uh, St. Augustine right now, we're at a reunion for VFA 192 and uh, Turk Green, one of, one of my personal heroes at Naval Aviation was the CEO of the Golden Dragons and uh, was also the captain of the Kennedy and the TR. Uh, 
who told me one time when we when we came back from deployment in 1995 uh, from the Middle East and we got delayed off of Taiwan for Taiwan's crisis contingency operation. It was the USS Independence and the USS Nimitz. And this is when we weren't thinking much about the Chinese at all. And I said to Turk, I said, you know, what in the world are we doing? We're not planning to bomb anybody or anything. You know, because I was, he's like, hey, listen, this is why we have aircraft. This is why we have uh, this capability and only we have it. And this strategic capability that we have in aircraft carriers and it's scalable capability that comes with its own access, both physical and political, is something that nobody has ever done before and nobody will ever do it again. And, and we cannot we cannot back off on that capability because it, it is critical to national defense and global global security. So that's that's a, a lot more advice, but for individual advice. Just keep stroking. Don't think much past the weekend. Well, Admiral Lewis, it has been a, a real honor to serve with you. You know, years ago, you and I were both in Desert Storm flying off different aircraft carriers. We worked together when I was XO on Truman, several iterations behind Turk Green, by the way, and you were CAG-3. And then I worked for you as you were standing up Second Fleet, and I was at CSG-10, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to support uh, you as the Second Fleet Commander in my role here at uh, Air Lant. It has been an absolute pleasure to serve with both you and Mary over the years. Uh, I wish you both fair winds and following seas. Oscar out.